You are listening to the Healing Migraines Naturally podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Caesar, and I'm helping women rediscover a migraine-free life. Today, I'm talking to Mary, who runs our awesome Facebook community, about what is health and what is disease. Welcome, Mary. How are you? Doing great. Tell me what we're talking about today. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about how we think about health and how we think about disease. Okay. Because how we think about these things shapes what we do as an individual and then also what we do as a society. Yeah. Right. And and so how we approach disease, how we approach symptoms that our body is generating, how we approach how to either help ourselves attain health or how as a society we are going to structure things, help other people, right? I mean, in the United States, healthcare accounts for 19% of the GDP. Yeah, wow. And a lot of people don't call it healthcare, they call it disease care. Right. So nearly 20% of the U.S. economy is spent on people's health or disease, right? Mm -hmm. So how we look at health and disease as a society is going to have a tremendous impact on us in our individual health, let alone the impact on society. Right. Economy aside, I've often thought it's interesting where the biggest dollars are thrown and it's like health and entertainment are the two things that I feel like are the biggest dollar collectors, for lack of a better word. Like, Hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's to me says, okay, we really, really value in our society, the appearance of health and being entertained. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? And I mean, it's also, I think particularly the entertainment number, right? It's a reflection of the standard of living that we have here in the U.S. Wasn't too long ago where all humans, where 99% of humans really spent the majority of their day just on the basics of shelter, food, Mm-hmm. entertainment was not going to rank up there as far as effort. You're going to entertain yourself or your community after you've got those fundamentals. You can't make that a priority until you've got safety and shelter. And yeah, for sure. So it does say that we're quite lucky in that way, for sure. And I think on the flip side, right, if we're spending 19% of the economy on disease care, yikes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those two figures, quite a dichotomy there right. as it reflects on our society. I'm thinking about, okay, we're dumping all this money into A, something that we think will make us happy and B, something that should help us be healthy. And are we getting our money's worth out of either of those things? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, and ultimately, right, we are experiencing symptoms that are causing us suffering. That's what motivates people to make an appointment with a doctor. Mm -hmm. There are some situations where people can have what is called a disease. Their body may not be functioning properly, but they don't have any symptoms of it and they're unaware. I think this is an unfortunate situation. There are what we call diseases. And I think, you know, we'll jump into sort of how I look at what is health and what is disease. But what we generally call disease, right? There are some diseases that really don't generate a lot of symptoms. And that's unfortunate for the sufferer. Right. And when I talk about this to chronic migraine sufferers, sometimes 
you know, sometimes people get a little irritated with me and I understand why I've been in the same headspace with my chronic migraines. But those of us that are prone to migraines, we are very fortunate in that when our body gets out of a state of health and starts to generate symptoms, we have a very, very obvious symptom. (laughs) That's extraordinarily painful and it motivates us to get help for it. So in that sense, we're very fortunate. Yeah. Just as a little anecdote, my aunt actually passed away from ovarian cancer and, you know, zero symptoms until it's pretty advanced. So I agree there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one of those cancers, right? Where that's pretty typical. Yeah. You know, you can have a stroke due to hypertension, but the hypertension itself, for most people, they're totally unaware that their blood pressure is high. Right. It's not something that generates symptoms that people are aware of consciously Mm -hmm. or physically. Let me ask you a funny question. I don't actually think of the word disease until I have an official diagnosis of something. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think of, oh, my back hurts all the time or I've got high blood pressure as a disease, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. fit the connotation of the word, but our body is still in a state of dis-ease right? So Mm -hmm. I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's interesting that we have to have like a certain level of disease before it's acknowledged as a disease. Great segue here into the topic, right? What is disease? So our concept of disease, it's a concept that is in part rooted in reality. And, And I mean that in a very literal sense, right? We are living in a real world. We have a real body. There's real biochemistry that's taking place within our cells, right? So disease in one way is rooted in that reality of our physical body and also the reality of life on earth, okay? Because we humans are not divorced from life on earth either, right? We are part of a whole living system here on planet Mm -hmm. earth. What we call disease or our conception of disease is rooted in the very real reality that we live in. At the same time, disease is also sort of a man-made or a human-made construct. Mm -hmm. What is occurring within all living things, so the life force that animates all living things, the biochemical processes that are occurring within all living things, they again, being rooted in reality, they're following the laws of nature, okay? So things are not just randomly happening in the universe. The universe is governed by what we call laws, natural laws, laws of nature. And so every living thing is subject to that. The universe has an inherent sort of rationality to it. If it didn't, we wouldn't have science, Mm-hmm. If you look back, particularly in the ancient world, humans considered that the universe was just sort of this random place. Things happen just at the whim of the gods. Right. And in the West, the reason why what we call science or the scientific method grew out of the West is because in Western culture, Western culture is sort of a combination of Greek thought and the Judeo-Christian heritage. And you blend those two together and you have a universe that is rational, governed by laws. The Greeks called this the logos, 
Mm-hmm. Right? The early Christians kind of adopted the logos to sort of mean the will of God. Within the West, our civilization is founded on this fundamental assumption or paradigm that the universe is ordered and rational. If you understand the laws, the natural laws, if you understand the rationale of the universe, then you can predict things. Mm -hmm. And that's really what science is. Science is a systematic way of trying to understand what the natural laws are of the universe so that we can make predictions. Right. And if you can make predictions, then you can build a bridge over a river. You can put people on the moon. Right. So there's a tremendous truth in this Western paradigm because let's look at when humans, quote unquote, get sick, when humans, quote unquote, get a disease. There are recurring patterns to Mm -hmm. the symptoms that the body generates. And there are recurring patterns within the physical body that our body generates. There's recurring patterns on the mental and emotional side. So Mary, if to pull in, you know, you're getting your graduate degree in psychology, right? So people experience, say, physical abuse in childhood. There are predictable ways in which that child will respond to that sick environment, if you will. Right. Right. It's not like, oh, just, you know, any ran, you know, the, that child may just randomly do whatever, just however many children there are, there's that many responses to a physically abusive environment, right? The field of psychology using the scientific method has come to understand that there are some predictable patterns in the way that a child is going to respond to a physically abusive environment. It's not a random response. Going along with that, we've made so many more advances that we're getting better at those predictions where we used to think a a kid was just naughty and now you can kind of take a minute and go, wait a minute, what's the reason behind all of this behavior? Like we're getting better at seeing those things. Yeah, getting better at seeing those patterns. Yes. And making those predictions. And then when you can do that, then okay, what interventions are going to work the best? Because we're not dealing with just an infinite number of responses. We're dealing with some predictable responses so we can put together some different approaches to go with those anticipated potential responses. Mm-hmm. When our bodies do not have what they need to function properly, from a biochemical standpoint, from a physical standpoint, from the standpoint of our mental or emotional or spiritual side. Mm-hmm. When our bodies don't have what they need to function properly, they are going to generate symptoms. Our body is going to generate symptoms, and the symptoms are generated within predictable patterns. Mm -hmm. They're not just random patterns. There's some predictable patterns. Let me ask you really quick. Are you saying that there's predictable patterns on an individual level or as a, like, society in general level. Like for example, if I get chronic migraines, the predictable pattern is if I am out of a state of health, my migraines kick in, but you don't see migraines in every single person. So I'm curious, like predictable patterns on a more global level as well. Yes. The individual has their own patterns that they're prone to. Mm -hmm. And then we can see aspects of 
what the individual is prone to play out in other people. Mm-hmm. So if we take an individual who's prone to what we call migraines, right? So maybe we don't call it migraines yet, right? We have we have one individual that is prone to these sudden attacks where the right side of their head feels like they're being stabbed with a knife in their temple. Mm-hmm. And at the same time this starts to happen, they start to feel very nauseous and they might even vomit. Mm. And the individual notices this happens over and over again to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, sometimes there's a little sweating thrown in there to boot, or maybe there's a little irritability thrown in there to boot, but definitely feeling like I'm being stabbed in my temple and feeling really, really nauseous. That's a pattern that I'm right. prone to, right? So then the people that we call doctors, right, that are trained to look for patterns, right? And I mean, Western medicine goes back to the Greeks, right? So we have a 2,500-year historical record within the West of doctors or physicians trying to figure out what these patterns are. Mm -hmm. So then the doctor, the medicine woman, you know, whoever is helping people, they start to notice, huh, yeah, Sally over here, she feels like she's getting stabbed with a knife and she feels like she's going to throw up. Well, you know, Richard over here, he feels not quite like he's getting stabbed, but he's, his head is pounding and he's nauseous too, right? I mean, all of these observations have piled up over thousands of years, not only in the West, but other cultures as well, right? And mm-hmm. so you can see these patterns start to emerge. Yeah, there are some people, they get these sudden attacks where there's some part of their head that is really hurting, and then they have nausea, or they have these other symptoms. So over the millennia that this has been observed, now we have put a name on it. Mm-hmm. The phenomenon that the body is generating, the individual, to your question, right? Individual is prone to repeating patterns or recurring patterns of symptoms. And then we can see that other people as well are prone to similar recurring patterns of symptoms. So this is happening in reality. Mm-hmm. We humans, because we need to organize reality, we will name things. We'll put the label on things. Right? Right. And so in medicine, this is called, and you know, in, in modern medicine now, this is called the diagnostic criteria. Mm-hmm. What the medical community, again, this wasn't just created five years ago. I mean, this is going back hundreds of years of consensus. But the medical community has carefully looked at these recurring patterns. And then there is some judgment call made, some you know human judgment call made. Okay, what symptoms are we going to say? Okay, if you have these symptoms, we're going to call it this. I know it sounds silly, but like when I finally realized that like a diagnosis, whether it's psychological or physical, is literally just a name that we give to a collection of symptoms. Mm-hmm. It's not like a, a construct that humans have made. A disease isn't, isn't a real thing as a like a concrete thing. It's a collection of symptoms that we've given a name, basically. Yes. It's interesting to me. <laughs> yes. Like There isn't a bacteria that drops on us Mm -hmm. that gives us migraines. Right. There isn't a little dragon flying around in the sky (laughs) that jumps on our back and now we have migraines. Right. 
the symptoms are being generated by our body when we are not in a state of health. And then we humans have noticed, right, that the body is not just randomly doing stuff, that there are predictable patterns within that person across people. And so then we put a label on that. We put a name on that. Mm -hmm. Migraines used to be called sick headaches. So when you look at some of the older literature, even a hundred years ago in the medical literature, you'd find, you know, the term sick headache. So disease, right? What we call disease, right? If somebody has the disease of chronic migraines, Mm -hmm. there is sort of a human-made construct to that label, but it's not just pulled out of thin air. Right. It's rooted in a reality of the human experience and the reality of life on earth. Mm-hmm. Where people get frustrated is when they just don't quite meet the diagnostic criteria that we humans have created. Mm-hmm. And particularly our current dominant system of medicine, you cannot be treated for something unless you have a diagnosis. Now, for me, I don't work with those limitations, right? If people are having symptoms, we figure out why they're having symptoms and we address those underlying causes. It doesn't matter, does somebody technically check the boxes for chronic migraine or do they technically check the boxes for for this or that, Right. right? But when you go into your neurologist, you cannot be prescribed the medication to suppress the symptoms that are causing you suffering unless you can be diagnosed, unless you can check those boxes to be diagnosed with a disease. And we've talked about how maddening it can be to get a diagnosis where you're like, hey, I don't feel very good, but I have, quote unquote, nothing wrong with me. Like there's nothing physically that they can see. So Mm -hmm. you leave the doctor feeling so discouraged because you just need to know what's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're not going to be prescribed certain medications, right? So if, if your migraines start getting worse and worse, and the Imitrex isn't cutting it anymore, and you need too much, well, it's not good to take too much Imitrex. Then you've got to qualify for other meds. Mm-hmm. And that's based on the frequency, the symptoms, right? So in modern conventional medicine or allopathic medicine, they actually have textbooks of algorithmic diagrams, right? So like flow charts, right? Mm-hmm. The medical doctor is not sitting there listening to your symptoms and thinking about the biochemistry and the physiology of your body and, you know, what could be causing this. They're running through the algorithmic flow chart. Do we have enough symptoms here to get a diagnosis of chronic migraines? And if yes, then these are the first medications we start with. If no, well, Good luck to you. (laughs) Come back next month and try again. (laughs) Exactly, right? Many people are told, I can't help you until you're sicker. Right, which that is depressing if you ask me. Like, come back when you're even more miserable. (laughs) Exactly, because you're not generating enough symptoms for me to check the boxes for this diagnosis and everything flows from there, right? So come back when you're feeling worse, then I can help. So what we think of, as disease in our modern medical system is very unproductive Mm. for what people really want. And what people really want is to feel good. 
They want to be in a state of health. They don't want their body to be generating these symptoms that are causing them suffering. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be told, well, you're suffering now, but you're not suffering enough. So come back when you're suffering more. <laughs> it just sounds silly. It really does. <laughs> this happens. I'm sure there are many people listening to this that are raising their hand. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I told you I went through my whole gallbladder thing, you know, 15 years ago. And it was like, how many tests do I have to take to prove to you that it really right. is sick, right? So yeah. I get it. It just sounds so silly. <laughs> What we really want and what we all intuitively know, right, is that we don't have an Imitrex deficiency. We certainly don't have a Topamax deficiency, right? What we intuitively know is that our bodies have an innate ability to heal and restore themselves back to health, just like every other living thing on the planet. You have a tree, like we're entering springtime here. My office looks out onto some beautiful trees and they're starting to bud their leaves, right? So as, as we're recording this, I'm looking out at some trees. If there's an injury to the trunk of the tree, the tree heals that. Mm-hmm. So we are no different. We have an innate ability to heal. This is what people want. They want to be healthy, right? They want to be in a state of health. Mm-hmm. So what is health, right? So let's look at the dictionary definition of health. Okay, this is from the Oxford Dictionary. Uh, first definition, the state of being free from illness or injury. In this case, we are contrasting health with disease. Right. Right. Disease is still tied into the definition of health. Health is not really a positive state. It's a state of not having something. Right. Lacking the disease is what makes mm-hmm. you healthy. Again, if we have a conception for ourselves that we're healthy if we are free from illness, if our society has a conception that people within the society are healthy if they're free from illness, Mm -hmm. this is where we get into the problem that we just discussed. Well, I ran your blood work and you're healthy. Well, we did an MRI and you don't have a brain tumor, so that's good news. There's like a circular problem. Like I can't prove to you that I feel like crap and I don't like I'm not healthy, but I don't have enough symptoms to be diagnosed with anything. So I don't have a disease, but I don't not have it. Like it's almost like you're chasing your tail. Mm -hmm. So you can see if we're defining health in this way, the impact that it has Mm -hmm. on how we are treated when we go into the doctor's office and then how we have to process this. Mm. Right. Because it's like, well, the doctor said I'm free from an illness, so I'm healthy, but I feel horrible. So what does that say about me? Am I crazy? Mm -hmm. Should I just be happy Mm -hmm. that I'm feeling so horrible because I don't have a disease? Right. Like a kind of it's like a gaslighting. It kind of is. Yeah, I agree with you. So it's very confusing for people. Mm-hmm. And this is why people leave doctor's offices in tears. They leave doctor's offices angry. I have experienced this personally. It's been actually 11 years now. I got very, very ill. One thing that was impacted was my eyes and my eyesight. And I never had real robust eyesight going back to when I was a kid. I got a bifocals when I was seven years old. So it's a little bit, my eyes are a weak point, weak organ. And so when I got very, very sick, my vision was affected. That was the year that I turned 40. 
So I had glasses, but when I went into the doctor and I said, you know, I'm recovering from this really severe illness and gosh, you know, I just cannot see. Mm. Well, you know, you're 40, you know, you're going to need readers because you're 40. No, I I really don't think it's because I'm 40. You know, I've had this severe illness. My eyes have not been the same, right? Like I was not being listened to at all. (laughs) There was a noticeable difference before and after this illness. and But oh, you're 40, you need readers, right? And so I went through for 10 years until last year. I can't tell you how many ophthalmologists, you know, medical eye doctors, optometrists that I have been to in the search for effective prescription lenses. (laughs) And I'm laughing now because, you know, either you laugh or you cry, right? Of course. (laughs) But I would go in to the eye doctor and you know how it is. I would go through my health history. They would look at me like, what does this have to do with your eyes? (laughs) And then they put you on the machine, you know, is, is A better or B better, right? Number one or number two, you go through that whole thing. I'm just going to throw this out there that that A and B thing is terrible for people with anxiety. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I don't know, but uh, if you tell me that it's better to have A, then I'll take it. (laughs) I know. There's so much writing on this, right? Because glasses aren't cheap. No kidding. I went through that so many times. I would get the glasses and I still wouldn't be able to see properly with the lens that was prescribed. And so I would go back in and talk to the front desk staff who normally acted like I was crazy because, you know, you did the A or B, the one or two, and these are the lenses. I mean, what could be the problem? You know, I would go into the eye doctor, you know, is my retina okay? Is it a nerve signaling issue? You know, all the tests. Oh, your retina looks great. Your eyes look great. The pressure's fine, right? Nothing would ever come back. And so because of that, I felt like no one was taking me seriously when I would say over and over again, you know, I keep answering the questions that you ask. Is it is one better or two? Is it A or B? And I still can't see well. Mm, that's so frustrating. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many eye doctor offices I have left in tears. Mm. Because, yeah, it is so frustrating to say, you know, this is what I'm experiencing. And people said, well, everything looks fine. You answered the, is it A or is it B? There's nothing wrong with your, you know, like everything should be fine. These glasses should work for you, but they're not. Right. Finally, last year, I did find an eye doctor. I finally got... some prescriptions where I I could see well again. That's why people get so obsessed with getting a diagnosis though, because it's almost like just validating that there is actually something wrong. It's not in your head. You're no longer gaslit. And then hopefully if you have the right diagnosis, you can get help, right? So diagnosis almost becomes an obsession. Well, and my experience with this, there was something about the standard way of determining lens prescriptions that was not working for me. Mm-hmm. But nobody would do anything for me other than, okay, put your chin here and, you know, mm-hmm. read the card and, you know, is is it number one or number two, right? Nobody would do anything different than that. I left one office, you know, I'm in my car, I'm driving back home and I said to myself, I, how do I find somebody 
that will actually figure out why none of these well-chosen prescriptions don't work for me. Like, Mm. how do I find somebody who's actually going to determine why going through the standard steps to determine an eyeglass prescription is not working for me? Mm -hmm. Then I realized, oh, I need somebody like me for eyesight. Right. Because when I'm working with my clients, I'm working on, okay, what do you need? You've already done all the standard stuff. What do you actually need, right? We're going to go in custom and we're really going to get to the root. And it kind of dawned on me, oh, (laughs) this is the type of person that I need. Right. (laughs) They've checked off all of the flow chart boxes. and Right, exactly. We've gone down this algorithmic flow chart a hundred times now. Health, a state of being free from illness or injury, eh, doesn't quite cut it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it doesn't quite cut it, I think, is reflected in the fact that 19% of our economy is spent on health care and people couldn't feel worse. Right. right. People continue to feel worse and worse every year. Right. Well, and we've talked about before that there are so many symptoms that we just chalk up to normal life. Like, you know, like I was saying, my back pain or we've talked about acid reflux or whatever. Oh, just part of normal life. Yeah. Well, be thankful you don't have it worse. Mm -hmm. There's a definition of health that was written by a German physician in the late 1700s named Samuel Hahnemann. And he was considered the best physician in all of Europe, until he started questioning the medical system. Mm, Interesting. And then he was uh, roundly (laughs) chastised, dismissed, you know, character assassinated the whole bit. But he was, um, you know, he was one of these uh, child prodigy types, spoke many different languages, and was, like I say, he he was well known throughout Europe as sort of Europe's top doc. But he realized that the treatments that were being used were poisoning his patients. So this is a problem with Western medicine. There has always been two tracks within Western medicine, and this does go back to the Greeks as well. There has been one track in Western medicine where if somebody has symptoms, they are given poisonous, toxic substances that suppress the symptoms. Mm. In Dr. Hahnemann's time, this might have been things like high-dose mercury, Mm. okay? You give somebody enough mercury, their body doesn't generate those symptoms anymore that were causing them trouble because they're being poisoned by mercury and the body shifts its work to trying to fight that off. And so then it doesn't generate some of the other symptoms that it was generating. Western medicine has a long history of using toxic, might be metals, might be toxic plants, might be things like, you know, bloodletting, okay? Mm -hmm. Very harmful treatments to suppress the symptoms that the body is generating. That's been one track. Mm -hmm. The other track has been an approach that restores the body to health. And the famous ancient Greek physician Hippocrates was the founder of that track. And the Hippocratic Oath that medical doctors take is named after that Greek physician, but he was actually aligned on the health restoration track of Western medicine. So these two tracks of medicine have always been in conflict with each other through the history of Western society. A lot of people assume 
that the medical system that we have today with its pharmaceutical drugs is based on, you know, maybe in the in the village, you know, the village midwife or the the village medicine woman in her little herbal basket. Mm-hmm. That was the precursor to our modern scientifically tested and approved medicine. It's not. Mm-hmm. The midwife, the sort of you know, the grandmother with the herbal basket, she was aligned with the Hippocratic line of Western medicine. And I'm not saying only women were aligned with that. There were men that were aligned with that too. Mm -hmm. But that is a totally different track of Western medicine in contrast to this, what we call allopathic medicine that uses toxic substances, basically, to suppress symptoms. Mm -hmm. So Hahnemann was trained as a physician in this toxic track where you suppress the symptoms with these toxic plants and metals and things like that. Because he was so smart and so brilliant, he quickly realized that he was not restoring the sick to health. He was poisoning people. Mm. And so he actually stopped practicing medicine for a while until he sort of rediscovered this second track, the Hippocratic track of restoring people to health. And when he started doing that and he started writing about this and scientifically formulating an approach to do that and training other physicians in Europe to do that, this is when the tide turned against him (laughs) and he started being character assassinated, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what does Dr. Hahnemann, what does he say health is? So he wrote, in the healthy condition of man, the vital force that is the animating force, the life force that animates all living things. In the healthy condition of man, the vital force that animates the material body rules with unbounded sway and retains all the parts of the body in admirable, harmonious, vital operation as regards to both sensations and functions, so that our indwelling, reason gifted mind can freely employ this living, healthy instrument for the higher purposes of our existence. Wow, that's actually like poetic (laughs) and really yeah. And so he's saying that in the healthy human, the organizing energy of the body, what I call our resiliency and vitality, our life force, rules with unbounded sway, right? So unbounded sway means that it is vital enough to weather all of the stressors in our lives, right? It's flexible. Oh, you're going to be out in the sun for a long time? I, I got that, right? Oh, now you're going to go into a cold air condition? I got that too, right? It's ruling with unbounded sway, easy, breezy resiliency to stressors and retains all the parts of the organism or all the parts of our body in a harmonious state With regards to both the sensations, that would be our symptoms, how we feel physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and functions, that would be our biochemistry, so that our indwelling reason-gifted mind can fully employ this living, healthy instrument or living, healthy body for the higher purposes of our existence. I love that, especially the higher purpose part. Like I feel often when we talk about migraines and stuff that People should just be able to live in a state of joy and how migraines hold them back from doing that. I think that's part of our higher purpose is to have that joy. So, yes, I believe that all 
humans are here for a purpose. Mm-hmm. That we are inherently worthy. But the fact that we are here on this miraculous planet is a complete miracle. And we're here for a reason. Migraines are robbing us of the ability to live our lives in accordance with our purpose, live our lives in accordance with why we are here. Mm -hmm. What is the higher purpose of your existence? I love that. We can access that when we have safety and security, food on the table, and we can access that when we're not bogged down by debilitating symptoms. Mm -hmm. are affecting us physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Because I do think that there is a higher purpose to our existence here. I agree. You've given me a lot to think about, about health. It's going to take me a minute to process all of that. Probably not the only one. (laughs) And so this is what I strive for in my life personally. How close can I get to achieving my potential, right? This is kind of what we call potential in this day and age. So that I can enact here on earth why I'm here, the purpose of my life. Mm-hmm. Some days are better than others. That is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes acting out our purpose is painful. <laughs> it is. It's it's work. It's a challenge. It's um, it's a challenge. Exactly. Yeah, it's not the easy road. <laughs> it's not. It's not a skip through the tulips. No. Oh my goodness. Right? The higher purpose of our existence is going to be fraught with challenges. Mm. And this is why we have to be well to meet those challenges. Mm-hmm. So when I'm making choices for myself as to how I'm going to treat myself and, and do things for myself, when I'm working with my clients, ultimately, what are we trying to do here? Mm-hmm. If it were just, well, I don't want to have migraines anymore. Okay, well, w- what else? What else are we really doing here? Mm. We're really trying to achieve our full potential. Yeah. Just existing without migraines is a really low bar to set. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. Like I understand living without migraines is a big deal because it's so hard. But just meaning the bar doesn't need to be set that low because you deserve better than that bar. Does that make sense? But, you know, when we're suppressing the symptoms of the migraines, because let's, you know, let's be honest, we may take an Imitrex and it may cut things down 90% and we may be able to go on with our day. Mm -hmm. We may take the blood pressure medication and maybe that cuts out 25% of our monthly migraines. But are we really feeling that well? Mm Mm-mm. We're still not feeling that well. We're still just suppressing the symptoms enough so that we can make it through the day. Right. And I honestly think we both would much, much prefer people live at a higher standard than just getting through the day, including myself. I'm including myself, especially lately. So Mm -hmm. our existence is more than just getting through the day. Right. Mm -hmm. So what if we had a society that was putting 19% of our GDP into helping people get to the point where they have a body, mind, and spirit that is functioning harmoniously enough so that they can use their reason-gifted mind 
and freely employ their healthy body to the higher purposes of their existence. What kind of world would we be living in? Mm -hmm. What human potential would be unleashed on this planet? Mm -hmm. What mental and emotional and spiritual things could humans attain if we put 19% of our economy into fostering this type of health? It would be really amazing to see. What would we as an individual, if we had this as a goal, how would that impact how we care for ourselves, the decisions that we make every day around how we care for ourselves? How would that be different for us? Mm -hmm. These cultural concepts that we have that we as the individuals living in the culture obtain, it's no joke. Right. Right. You know, we humans, we want to be careful, sort of, you know, what star we hitch our wagon to. If we can't ever step out of the mindset of, you know, just having a good enough life that we're avoiding migraines, just getting that diagnosis will solve everything or any of those things. It's just like we're still repeating the same patterns that are keeping us unwell. Mm -hmm. What's coming to your mind? Let us know in the comments in the Facebook group. Shoot me an email if you like. Mm -hmm. Why are you here? What is the higher purpose for your existence? And if you are experiencing symptoms that are getting in the way of that, let's get that fixed. Let's get that turned around because you are way too important to not be living up to your potential and contributing to the other people here on this planet who need you. Mm -hmm. You were put here for to have an impact on. You're way too important. Mm, That's all of that. So deep. I'm feeling it. (laughs) So important. Well, thanks, Mary. You're welcome. It was a great chat. Well, we will talk to you soon, Mary. We'll leave it at that and we'll let people kind of process that and think about that in their own lives. All right. We'll see you guys next time. And thank you for listening. Before you go, be sure to like this episode, subscribe to this podcast, share with someone in your life who you think would benefit from this information. And if you want to stay connected with us, you can join my free Facebook group, Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar, ND, where over 10,000 women are rediscovering a migraine-free life. You can go to Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar, ND in the Facebook search bar or to healingmigrainesnaturally.com and we'll redirect you to the group. 